Hello and welcome to the second series of ETY podcast, Voices from the World of Work. I am Bianca Luna Fabris, Communication Officer at the ETY, and I will be the host for this season. Today, I will be joined by Nicola Conturis, the new Research Director at the Institute. Before we dive in the questions, let me just tell you a little bit more about Nicola. He has joined the ETY in September and he is our new research director. Nicola holds a PhD in law from the University of Oxford and prior to moving to Brussels, he was professor of labor law and European law at UCL in London. Um, Nicola, thank you so much for agreeing to open the new season with me today and a warm welcome from the ETY and the communications team. So what has been your impression at the Institute so far? Thank you very much. Thank you for the introduction. Well, in many ways, it has confirmed uh, what I had always suspected. This is a unique institution, uh, bridging the gap between academic research, the trade union movement, uh, EU institutions, EU policy. Uh, So uh, it's excellent. But in other ways, it continues, I have to say, to surprise me. I mean, the level of dedication, even passion that all my colleagues share for their work and for the mission of the organization is is absolutely nothing but exceptional. There are are dozens of highly qualified people uh, that uh, could have chosen to be anywhere, anywhere they wish, from some of the top universities in Europe and, and, and beyond, or virtually any international organization of their choice, but that, like, like me, have understood that uh, working at the ATUI can really make a big difference, and uh, they're giving it all. That's wonderful, thank you. Um, what do you think are the short-term and long-term goals uh, of the research department? In a snapshot, I'm sure that you could probably carry on speaking about this for <laughs> hours, but, uh, in a snapshot. Thanks. Well, the ETI is, is a well-oiled, well-functioning research machine and a very sophisticated one. So my top priority right now is to make sure that nothing I do ends up messing that up. So that's important. Now, in the medium to long term, the major challenge is, and I suspect it will always be, to adapt to the changes around us and ensure that we can harness all our resources, internal and external. By by that, I mean all the networks of academics or trade union experts that cooperate with us to make sure that we can achieve two essential things. Firstly, contribute to the understanding of the many changes affecting the world of work, and uh, secondly, ensure that the solutions that we propose deserve and command the level of cogency and credibility, including the intellectual credibility that they need in order to shape the policy debate. Um, In your opinion, what is the added value of research in strengthening the labor movement? It's a good question. Well, our research contributes, I think, to that important goal in three main ways. Uh, part of our task here is, is, of course, to monitor and clarify by rendering them intelligible and discernible the various developments that inevitably constantly occur in the world of work, in the world of policy and in the world of research. So some of this can at times appear as rather mundane, but it is essential that the labor movement is informed clearly and in a t- timely fashion about the important trends and developments that crop up before our eyes every day and that need to be interpreted and understood uh, correctly. Uh, Secondly, and and stemming from from that, 
Our research also has a strong public service uh, component to it, especially in respect of our key stakeholders. We need to be able to find solutions to the problems that we identify and uh, we, we do this regularly, we do it now, we do it both directly, for instance, many of our ETUI experts sit or advise various EU bodies and, and indirectly with the research outputs that never, never indulge in uh, navel gazing. And, and thirdly, and this is no small thing, a research needs to lead in the field of ideas. I have no doubt that this is essential. And there is a very clear sense of urgency in doing that, especially in the present conjuncture. We cannot afford the COVID-19 crisis that has been unfolding before us, as we speak, to lead to a repeat of what happened in the aftermath of the 2008 crisis and, and the recession. Um, and right on what you just said on the 2008 crisis and the recession, do you think we could have um, learned something from that crisis that we could have potentially replicated in COVID-19 crisis and, and post-crisis phase? That crisis could have been an opportunity to rethink the fundamentals of our financial, economic and labor regulation system. And there were clear signs back then that the systemic deregulation of markets, including labor markets, that organizations such as the IMF, the OECD, and to a certain extent, let's be honest, the EU had promoted in the decade leading to 2007 and 2008 had led to that crisis. And the societies and the international community needed to rebuild and re-regulate with fairness and equality as the two primary policy aims. Instead, a couple of years after 2008, 2009, and we ended up in the midst of the most ruthless and uh, in, in, intense austerity-driven deregulatory policy phase ever seen in Western Europe. And that was partly because the narrative and then the policy agenda had been seized once again by those whose, uh, who serve policy interests that have nothing to do with those of the labor movement or even with uh, the well-being of societies at large, I fear. Do you think the trade union movement and academia should have done something for this regard? Uh, so we should have been there. We should have been leading and shaping that narrative. And we and our many allies in many ways failed to do that. And that led to a grotesque decade with levels of inequality and destitution that, at least in Europe, were unheard, were unheard of for, for generations. It produced political and social tensions that we're still trying to come to terms with. So, as we are confronting the challenges thrown at us by this pandemic, we need to make sure that our voice is heard, that our ideas are taken seriously, that our vision for a more equitable, fair and democratic Europe shapes the narrative in the months and years to come. And this is partly of what our research is also about. I, I, I should say that I'm, I'm, I'm quite optimistic about that. And, Although clearly there's uh, no room for complacency and, and the stakes couldn't be higher. Um, you know, if, if we fail to shape that narrative now and if the post-COVID reconstruction agenda is seized by the opposite policy side, which, to be clear, is still out there, we will inflict wounds on the European social and economic integration project from which it may never recover. And I think there is now a shared awareness of that. 
Thank you so much, Nicola. If you don't mind shifting the focus uh, a little bit, um, what do you think have been the sectors that have been the most effective by COVID-19 and why? Well, COVID has acted as a, both an accelerator in respect of a number of important pre-existing deficiencies in our labor markets and, and labor law systems, and has also generated some new pressures and tensions that we're still trying to come to, to terms with. So at one level, it has revealed what admittedly we, we've known for a while. There is too much market and too little labor or too little labor protection in our labor markets. They are uh, extremely segmented, they're segregated, and different workers along the spectrum uh, and in different sectors uh, uh, live their working lives in uh, completely different ways. Uh, some, some workers have been able to uh, adapt to the new working patterns dictated by the pandemic and uh, by the social distancing uh, measures designed to contain it without um, experiencing any loss of income or adverse effect on their livelihoods. And in fact, some workers may have uh, drawn some unexpected benefits from these changes, uh, including in terms of uh, shorter commutes, uh, but uh, with the caveat that for many of them, labor has also intensified in ways that were hardly foreseeable uh, before teleworking was introduced as a normal pattern of work. Other workers, and typically those who were already in the most vulnerable and precarious jobs, have had their lives, and not just their working lives, turn upside down by the pandemic. I know that at the Institute you have been actively collecting data on COVID-19. Um, preliminary, um, what is this data showing? The data that we are receiving confirmed that uh, the negative effects of the pandemic on the world of work in terms of uh, job losses, loss of income, intensification, uh, but also fragmentation of working patterns and managerial demands and, and control are disproportionately affecting those on lower incomes, working in uh, precarious conditions and those with one or more protected characteristics with gender, age, race and disability clearly emerging as uh, important factors here. So the, the pandemic hit a workforce after uh, decades of deregulation and austerity. So it has really found us at our, at our weakest and, and it clearly risks further exacerbating existing economic and, and other kinds of inequalities that are present. Uh, the pandemic, however, has also generated some new and autonomous challenges for labor law and for certain sectors in particular, which I think is what you were alluding to. Um, at one level, it has reshaped our understanding of essential services and how crucial certain industries are to our actual survival. I mean, clearly, the medical professions and all those services that allowed uh, the medical profession to operate and do their job have been greatly affected. And I'm not sure that uh, regulation and policy have caught up with the enormous burden that uh, they are confronted with. And the, the fact that uh, COVID-19 is not recognized as an occupational disease in uh, the majority of European countries, Belgium being an exception, I understand, is really a slap in the face of these uh, essential workers. Uh, transport, logistics and even primary education, I think, have, have also emerged as far more fundamental to our, uh, 
think societal survival is a word than we had thought until now. And again, I'm not sure that uh, their contribution receives the recognition it, it deserves. Other sectors have been swept away from the COVID tsunami. I think that travel, hospitality, entertainment and culture industries have suffered disproportionately and ironically, precisely at a time where their essential contribution to a personal and mental well-being is becoming so clear, I mean, especially during lockdown. And of course, the single most important challenge has a reason for the workers in these industries or in any sector whose activities have been shut down by the pandemic. I mean, their, their, their livelihoods have changed dramatically. Their, their income mainly or exclusively depending on public funds and subsidies uh, administered by, by governments, uh, often with the support of all the contribution of EU institutions uh, and facilities. Uh, old and new, some have been created just and for this pandemic. Picking yeah. up on what you were saying on the European institutions, mm. what do you think should be the role of the EU in navigating the crisis? Right. Well, the EU has the most important role in this in this crisis. I, I, I would say that its main responsibility is to make sure that uh, the project steers away from any renewed austerity temptation that may arise as the recipe to deal with, I think, the inevitable large levels of public debt and deficits that will become apparent in the months and years to come. So in the past, the medicine of austerity nearly killed the patient and had uh, serious side effects on the health of the European integration project. Uh, this should not happen again. I mean, it should be clear that those who advocate this recipe do not have Europe's best interest at heart. And uh, a new wave of austerity, I'm adamant about this, wouldn't just kill the recovery after COVID. It would, it would kill Europe. Uh, the second role um, will be that of coordinating the response to the crisis, in including the national responses. And I think that there is a risk this time that some austerity responses paradoxically could emerge uh, in a bottom-up fashion from certain national policy environments and milieus and, and contaminate the rest of the system. Now, the fact that unions will play a greater role in shaping national recovery plans compared to the traditional uh, semester system is good news, but it's not enough. Unions need to be empowered. The, the voices can only resonate if member states and the EU play an important role in making sure that uh, voices are not just heard but also valued across the boards and in society at large. Th thirdly, and no less importantly, the EU will have to take seriously the long-term effects of the inevitable macroeconomic imbalances that the COVID situation will produce, especially if protracted not only must resist uh, uh, austerity as a response, but it must promote, I think, a new discourse around a fair and sustainable recovery, where important questions about uh, wealth redistribution and solidarity both between but also within countries are addressed correctly, obviously within its uh, regulatory competences, which will be a challenge. Close the podcast with the one final question. Um, what do you think a fair labor market looks like in three keywords? 
Uh, well, uh, the difficult question. Um, I, I think, first of all, a labour market can, can only be fair if, if workers and, of course, unions can actually participate to shaping its rules. So uh, workers' voice is a mass and, and it should be the duty of the state and public authorities at large to, to promote uh, workers' voice and, of course, to protect the fruits uh, of that uh, voice, including collective bargaining. It's very important. I think industrial democracy is essential to democracy as we understand it, and it's about time that it's valued again for what it contributes. Now, secondly, I think that labor law um, should not solely aim at protecting basic or fundamental rights, and that is the, the very least we, of course, uh, expect, but it should also protect uh, decent working conditions across the board and promote a fulfilling existence for everyone in the workplace and, and in society at large. And thirdly, allow me to draw from uh, the Philadelphia Declaration of 1944. That uh, document back then stated that one of the duties of, of, of labor law was to ensure a just share of the fruits of progress to all. And uh, I think uh, for uh, a long period of time, we have forgotten that important redistributive mission of labor law, and we need to rediscover it before it's too late. Wow, thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Nicola. It's been a, a real pleasure to chat with you. It was um, really, really highly interesting. Thank you so much. Pleasure and a privilege. Thank you very much, uh, Bianca. A big thank you also to our listeners. Thank you so much for tuning with us today. Please watch out for the next episode with Paula Franklin on COVID-19 in the healthcare sector.